Today's scripture reading is from 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 through 17. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Well, I just first wanted to thank everyone for um, letting me be here today and just tell you how much of a privilege it is to get to be here and share you share with you God's word. Um, when Paul came to me and asked me to be a part of the sermon series for VBS, I was elated because I was raised here at CCC and I attended VBS as either um, a student or a leader for probably 20 years. So getting to be a part of the series is really fun. Um, actually, as I was preparing for today, I remembered that I had this t-shirt quilt made by my aunt when um, I was in high school with uh, shirts from when I was littler, when I was a kid. And as I was looking through it, almost every single t-shirt is a t-shirt from being in the kids' ministry here at CCC. So I brought this just as proof that um, I was a number one fan of Paul and Kara growing up to the point where I used to have them sign things like they were celebrities or something. I don't know. Um, But really, VBS and the children's ministry here at CCC were just a huge catalyst for me in my life, um, for my relationship with God, um, to go to Bible college, and then to pursue um, ministry. So after I graduated from OCC, I worked as a children's minister at two different churches. And then as life moved us back to Fort Scott, um, I now get the privilege to uh, serve your kids and teach Sunday school and junior church. And that's just really awesome getting to love the kids here at CCC. Um, But since my heart is in teaching and my experience is teaching your kiddos, we're gonna start this morning, much like I start uh, our lessons back in junior church. So we're gonna start very, very, very beginning. Uh, And this is our true Bible story today from the Old Testament. Uh, We've made it past Adam and Eve to give you some context, then Noah and the flood, Abraham, Moses, and now we're a couple thousands of years later, and we have landed in the era of the kings. So in the books of 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles, which are our two parallel passages, we have the the stories of the kings of Israel. You've probably heard of the first three kings. First, we start with King Saul, and then King David, and then King Solomon, And then Israel splits into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah. Judah then has 15 kings, most of whom were bad kings. And then we end up in our passage today, 2 Kings 22, and the parallel passage, 2 Chronicles 34, with King Josiah. Now, we are 342 years past the dividing of the two kingdoms. So for me, sometimes when I'm looking at the Bible stories or I talk about years or dates or times, I can't really wrap my brain around that because it was so long ago and sometimes the number like 342 years doesn't really mean a lot to me. So if you're like me, let me put it in a little perspective for you. Um, From the time of President George Washington to the time of our current President Trump, there have been 230 years. Um, Obviously, there have been some pretty major changes in American history And the divided nation of Jerusalem now has an additional 112 years on us. So there's a lot that's happened in this nation. And Josiah didn't come into a kingdom free from issues or calamity. In fact, in 2 Chronicles 33, right before the reign of Josiah, it says, Ammon was 22 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned for two years in Jerusalem. 
And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as Manasseh, his father, had done. Amon sacrificed to all the images that Manasseh, his father, had made and served them. And he did not humble himself before the Lord, as Manasseh, his father, had humbled himself. But this Amon incurred guilt more and more. And his servants conspired against him and put him to death in his house. But the people of the land struck down those who had conspired against King Amon. And the people of the land made Josiah, his son, king in his place. Now, Jerusalem had elected these kings to be moral representative of themselves as a whole nation before God. So the moral state of Jerusalem before God is directly represented by that of the king. And leading up to King Josiah, Jerusalem had many bad kings and were judged by God based on the action of those kings. For example, Jehoram made Israel go astray and in 2 Chronicles 21, 11, it says to the point where they, God struck him with a horrible disease. And if you wanna know more information about that, look that up yourself because let me just tell you, it is not appropriate for me to say up here, okay? Okay, now Ahaz burned his own sons as an offering to the pagan gods. And then Manasseh dealt with fortune-telling, omens, sorcery, and mediums. And the Bible even says in 2 Chronicles 33, 9, that Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations of whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. This evil King Manasseh reigned for 55 years in Jerusalem. So you can imagine the amount of destruction that he had caused. And then his son Amon ruled for just two years, leaving the throne finally to King Josiah. Now, King Josiah had been made king at just eight years old. And at this time, he had advisors that managed his kingdom while he was still young. But as we see in the text just a few verses later, King Josiah was making decisions for himself when he was just 16, and they were godly decisions. Second Chronicles 34.3 says, For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David, his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places. The high places were places of worship and sacrifice to Canaanite pagan gods, such as Baal or Molech and Asherah. These high places dated back to the time of King Solomon when he established these places as foreign, for his foreign wives for them to worship their pagan gods. Jerusalem, the Jerusalem people would go to these places to worship these gods, but the worship that took place there was detestable and it required things like child sacrifice and prostitution. And these things were happening in the temple and all around Jerusalem. So King Josiah made a conscious decision not to make the mistakes of his father, but to lead in the righteous way of his ancestor, David. A few years later, the text says that in the 18th year of his reign, he began to raise money to repair the temple. And as he was doing so, the priest Hilkiah found the book of the law of the Lord. It's believed that the Pentateuch or the book of the law of the Lord had been destroyed all through Jerusalem except for this one copy that was hidden and preserved in the temple. Now this happened near the end of the complete eradication of the worship of the Lord during the reign of the evil king Manasseh and Ammon. The scrolls that they found were parts of the earlier Old Testament that laid out instructions for the temple, the people of Jerusalem, instructions for the people of Jerusalem and the covenant between God and the nation of Israel. 
When King Josiah read these words, he was greatly distressed. And the Bible says he tore his clothes, which is a sign of great agony because he had just learned that even with the changes that he had made to Jerusalem, Jerusalem had strayed so far from God's plan. He may have even just learned for the first time that God considered the kings, the covenant leaders, a role in which Josiah, not having read the word of the Lord, had not fulfilled. So Josiah got to work. He took the book of the law to a prophetess to hear if it was truly God's word. And when he learned that it was, he started working on correcting Jerusalem and leading their hearts back to God. He had the law read before the people and he made a covenant with God for Jerusalem. Second Kings 23.3 says, and the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all of his heart and all of his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book and all the people joined in the covenant. Josiah took down all the idols and anything that had been defiled by worship to the pagan gods, some that had been in place for hundreds of years since the beginning of the split of the two kingdoms that King Solomon had put in place. And then he reinstated the Passover. A previous good king, King Hezekiah, had also reinstated the Passover, but Josiah's Passover, Josiah's Passover was different. See, Hezekiah had provided 7,000 sheep and 1,000 bulls for the Passover meal, but Josiah provided 30,000 sheep and goats and 3,000 cattle. 2 Kings 23, 22 says that no such Passover had been kept since the day of the judges who judged Israel or during all of the days of the kings of Israel or the kings of Judah. Josiah was truly seeking to know God and to follow him. He gave a massive offering of his own livestock to observe the Passover, something that he knew that God deeply cared about by reading his word. The scripture said that Josiah was different, that Josiah was set apart. In 2 Kings 23, 25, it says, before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. So what set him apart? What made him so different? He had heard the word of the Lord. He had listened to the book of the law and he knew God. God wanted to be known by his people then and he wants to be known by his people now. Josiah's testimony tells us that we can know God through his word. Okay, now why does any of that matter? Because we're talking about a nation of people from thousands of years ago that were doing things so deplorable that even modern day America shudders. Here's why it matters. Because the Bible is a story from beginning to end that communicates God's heart for his people. God's word is the number one way of communication that he has for us. And God deeply wants us to know him. And we can do that by knowing his word. So in the story of King Josiah, he did not know God because he did not know the word of God because it had been hidden in the temple. We don't have that problem, y'all. Everyone in this room, everyone in America has access to the Bible. Whether 
your access is at home on a bookshelf or borrowing one from a friend or a public library, a hotel room, a waiting room, literally anywhere, or if that's right in your hand on a Bible app or just straight from the internet on your phone. Everybody has access to the Bible. So that's not the question. The question is, are we even reading it? We have access to open communication with God, but are we taking advantage of that at all? Are we using these words to truly know God or are we letting it sit on the shelf and collect dust? Or that app go unopened where the Bible has to remind you that it's happening, that it's still there, that the app exists. When I actually started to look into how many Americans read, American adults read the Bible, this is what I found. 48% of Americans read the Bible at least three to four times a year. So breaking that percentage down for you, adults who use the Bible daily account for 14% of the total adult population, followed by 13% who use it several times a week, 8% who do so once a week, 6% about once a month, and 8% who use it three to four times a year. So all of those statistics combined is what makes up our grand total of 48% of Americans who read the Bible at least three to four times a year. And I'm gonna go ahead and throw up this, um, this graph because I feel like many people will be eager to blame millennials for this, but just take a look at this. There's not a lot of difference between communities, generations, locations, populations, nothing. There's not a ton of difference. Collectively, less than half of America opens up their Bible three or more times a year. In comparison, the average person spends four days, four hours a day on their phone. And that seems like a pretty alarming statistic. And it seems like there's no way I could spend four hours a day on my phone. But consider this. If I spend 15 minutes checking notifications in the morning, 15 minutes on social media procrastinating at work, 30 minutes decompressing on my phone at lunch, 20 minutes reading an article or watching videos in the afternoon, 40 minutes playing a game on my phone in the evening, that adds up to two hours. And that is mostly time that we spend without even thinking on our phone. At least I do. And what I've noticed is that as a whole, we are so fast to take out our phone. It, trust me, that, that is definitely me included. I take out my phone when I'm waiting in line, or I take out my phone when I'm stopped at the drive-thru, when we're waiting on a friend at lunch or during commercial breaks, literally any lull of the day, my phone is in my hand subconsciously, I think, just pulling it out without thinking. But what if we used that habit to capitalize on our time instead of wasting it? It's already in our hand so much of the day, so why not use that wisely? Pull out your Bible app and start a quick devotional series. If you're feeling that lull and you wanna go to social media, just open it up and do something productive. Maybe open up the app and just read the verse of the day. Set an alarm or a reminder on your phone if that's what it takes to get you started. Just start somewhere. Because if we can spend the amount of time that we do on meaningless, mind-numbing activities, we have time to spend reading God's word. God's word itself says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, 
equipped for every good work. God's word is worth reading. Just start somewhere. And once we have started somewhere and we've begun to read God's word, there is one outstanding result. Change. Changed hearts, changed behavior, changed attitudes, fears, changed lives. God's word is powerful. Knowing God is powerful. God's word is what shows us God's plan for salvation. His word is his story to us about how he loved the world and he was grieved by sin. He called the people to know him and sent them the law, the kings and the prophets to guide them back to him. And how finally he sent his son to be the savior of us all. His word tells us how to live a life of joy and of peace. And this, his word, is how we know God's will, his heart, and his love. God's word is how we know Isaiah 40, 28 through 31. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases in strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not grow faint. God's word is how we know Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's word is how we know 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. I cannot read these words and not be changed by them. I cannot read about the power and the strength and the love and the glory of God without being changed by that truth. And the truth is that studies prove that the people who read the Bible are more at peace and find more joy in life as opposed to those who don't. Because this book isn't just a book. It's a story of God and his people. A story of an almighty God who pursues a broken, reckless, unworthy human race that he loves so deeply and so completely that it is overwhelming and all-encompassing. Some of you know, um, some of you I'm sure don't, but the last 11 days have been a pretty wild ride for me. Last Thursday night, I experienced for the first time uh, in my life a seizure-like episode. I lost total control of my body, um, had convulsions and po postured and was terrified. Over the next several days, I had over 35 seizure-like episodes and was taken to multiple ERs, admitted to KU Med, released, and had multiple doctor's office trips. By Monday, no doctor could tell me exactly why they thought this was happening to me. And most doctors thought I was either crazy or faking it. After having three episodes in a row, 
Multiple nurses and the rapid response team were in my room and a doctor whom I had never met, and also this was at KU Med, um, doctor whom I had never met came in the room and looked at me and said, are you stressed out? Do you need a Xanax? And I was humiliated. I was confused and frustrated and I felt so defeated because I felt like no one was listening. But at the end of the day, when I laid my head on my pillow at night, I had hope. Not because the doctors figured it all out, even though it seems like they did. Because honestly, I don't know what the last week of my life means for the rest of my life. If it will impact it or if it won't. But I have hope because I know that whatever happens, God is holding me. That, that may not mean that I get a happy ending um, to the hardships in my life like it seems like I did this time. I, I definitely won't. <laughs> but what it means is that every single day I get to wake up knowing that the God of the universe loves me. And he sent his son to die for me. And he sent his word for me to know him and be loved by him. To feel his peace that surpasses all understanding. To know not to be anxious about tomorrow, but to let tomorrow worry about itself. And to know that nothing, nothing will separate me from the love that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I know that through the word of God, I am a changed person. Not a perfect person by any means, but a changed person. I can rest in God's truth every day. You see, God doesn't want us just to know about him, facts and information, but to truly know him. John 17, three says, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The way we know God, to truly know him, is by reading his word. My prayer is that today, if you are looking for peace, joy, wisdom, truth, or whatever you may be seeking, that you will seek God through his word and be changed by what he has to say to you. You will carve out time in your day to spend in the depths of his love story to you. And you will be changed by the truth of his word and it will impact your life in a way that you could never imagine and that you will rest, hope, and trust in the God of the universe who is calling out to you through his unchanging word. God, thank you so much for today and for this community of believers and for your word that proves to us over and over again the depths of your love. Father, I thank you for your truth and your unfailing grace and love and kindness towards us, a people who are so undeserving. I thank you for these people who we get to come together every week and worship you. Thank you for Jesus. In his son's name we pray.